open your Bibles to Matthew 18. And this morning I want to continue to address the topic of forgiveness. So I want to read from verse 21 through verse 35. So let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Now, gracious Father in Christ, we come and we ask for your blessing. We ask for the blessing of enlightenment. Lord, help us to see from the text, Lord, what our moral duties are to one another. Help us to see, Lord, from the text, what grace is, what compassion is, what it is to grant forgiveness, what it is to ask for forgiveness. Now, Father, we come as a people who walk in a very sinful world, and we ourselves, Lord, uh, have that uh, sin principle still remaining where we battle these entanglements every day. And so, Lord, we ask for mortification of our own sin. We ask for understanding. We ask for a strengthened desire to walk in your most holy ways. We want to be pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, give us the encouragement from your word this morning on how we should live, how we should walk. Lord, how we can profitably live with one another and be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, hear the word of God, Matthew 18, verse 21 and following. And then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. And so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. And so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave and in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. 
Brothers and sisters, I continue in this text of Scripture not just to belabor the point of forgiveness, but because of several conversations and many questions about the nature of forgiveness, about the mechanics of forgiveness. It seems to be something that um, needs to uh, be expounded on further, and I wish that uh, this morning I can clear or at least clarify or bring to light some more truth to help each of us walk in a way that is pleasing in the Lord's sight and uh, conforming to his word and in a way that is beneficial to our brothers and our sisters around us. Remember, we are to be salt and light in this world. There is in the text two things that should stand out to us And both of these things are related to the king and the slave, the master and the servant. That are the the two words that I want to highlight in pressing onward in at least opening up or trying to open, open up this topic to you are the words compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy, and they are found in the text. Verse 27, the Lord of that slave felt compassion on him and released him from the dead. And then verse 33, should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave? Now, these two words are highly important to us as we consider our role in granting forgiveness when asked to forgive. I think the description, or at least the the one description that I gave to the nature of forgiveness that seemed to at least put some of you on notice was the word I used, conditional, describing forgiveness as conditional. And then I began to talk about sort of the the mechanics of it to some degree. As I attempt to clarified the word conditional this morning in your presence as I seek to bring clarity to the broader counsel of God's word. I I want you to know up front that I doubt I'm going to be able to satisfy all of your curiosities. And why is that? Well, Sin is something that gets complicated quickly. Sin is something that that can contaminate and pollute and distort and offend many people. And so when we come to the topic of forgiveness, we we have to at least with some maturity understand that we do live in a fallen world. And the best of saints, the best of saints and the closest of saints can sin against one another. But that does not mean that every sin is an offense. All offenses 
our sins, but not all offenses, rises to the occasion of following Matthew 18 are, are scandals. And we're going to look at the text in just a minute. But I wanted to, to just set that before you so that we understand that as I will do my due diligence to lay this before you to promote that forgiveness is conditional. As opposed to the, to the extreme view that we should never address sin whatsoever because we're all sinners. And we might have seen the bumper stickers, we, you know, to err is human. Uh, I, meaning, well, I'm a human, why would you correct me? We all sin. That there, there are these extremes that we must learn to maturely discern between so that we don't fall into one error or another, that we're able to walk in a, on biblical ground and, and with a clear conscience knowing what does God require of me in any given human relationship, particularly as it relates to asking forgiveness and granting forgiveness. Now, we don't want to be in the extreme that all sins are the same and that we just should overlook everything. I mean, we can see what this is doing on a national scale. When, when towns are burned, when, when, when men are unjustly prosecuted to appease the masses, that we just overlook that because, well, that's just the way it is. We know none of us are perfect. We have to be careful of that. And we don't want to go to the other uh, extreme that we're, well, God hates sin, and he does. I need to hate sin, so therefore we attack every sin to DEFCON 5, to this extreme fervor and passion and, and burn down everything in order to deal with some of the most minor sins. It's majoring on the minors. And again, we come back to there's no compassion and mercy, there's no love as we deal with one another. And, and Paul makes it clear. Let's just, let's add another verse to our reading this morning. Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Look down at um, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now, this is the Apostles Paul commandment to what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 18. This is the Apostle taking the teaching of Christ and applying it to a particular congregation, to a particular church and saying, hey, brothers and sisters, listen, let's put away those things that hinder our relationships, that anger, that malice, that slander, all of these things that, that cause, that can even rise to the level 
of causing our brother or our sister to stumble in the faith. Let's address these things. Let's, let's be loving. Let's be kind to one another. Let's be forgiving. Let's be forgiving. And that's what we want. That's our goal. That's what we want to work on. We want to be godly Christians. We want to emulate our heavenly father and we want to walk in his ways and we want to do it in a way that brings honor to him. It brings honor to the word of God. And ultimately, because it is honorable to God and it is the teaching of his word, it's a blessing to his people. Okay. So that's the goal. So let's address, I guess, this idea or at least some of these moral failure points that are common among many Christians. Now, when I say a moral failure point, I'm not talking about these are that they're moral, that the people are moral failures. It's not the intention. The point about a failure point, if you think about it in a mechanical sense, you can have a, an engine and a pulley on the front of the engine, but if that pulley has a crack in it, it's a failure point to the engine. It can break. It can shatter and render the engine, right, unusable. Well, if we are not biblical in how we react and live with one another, it will prove to be a moral, moral failure point in relationships. Because understanding what is sin versus an offense, what rises to the degree and level of an offense is huge. If we are all sinners and we live in a fallen world, and we do, and not one professing Christian has been perfected on this side of glory, right? then we need to know, we want to sure up those moral, those moral failure points. We want to sure them up so that we can do at least our due diligence as we walk with the Lord and with one another in a way that honors and pleases him. So let's, I'm not calling, if, if you hold the view that I'm speaking against, I'm not calling you a failure. Okay. I'm not intending to offend you. I'm intending to bring to light what can be a problem in relationships with others and for you to consider everything else that I'm going to say. Now, I've already stated that I doubt I'm going to satisfy all your questions. I mean, brothers and sisters, I've not satisfied all my own questions. Okay? But the, the, the view that we should have a conditional understanding of forgiveness answers most of the questions, okay? It does, I believe, the best job, and I hope to prove it to you, the best job in being faithful to how we should understand God's relationship to us and how we understand all the other human relationships in the Word of God. Now, I know that's a big topic, and it's, a, it, and it's from cover to cover. We don't get far in the Scriptures until we see an offense, right? We don't get very far in Genesis before there's an offense. And who's the first one offended? 
God. God's the first one offended when Eve took that fruit and she ate. Who was the second? Man, Adam, take and eat. This is good stuff. You're going to like it. So we don't get far in scriptures until we really have to deal with what the reconciliation of of divine to human relationships and from human to human relationships. Now, one of the things we're going to need to do as we go along and keep this in mind as, as I'm bringing up these principles to you is to understand that, yes, we are to emulate God, but we're not God. Yes, we are to hate sin, but we don't hate sin the way God hates sin. And we don't have the moral obligation to police every sin like he does, as he will. So keep that in mind when, we, when you're wrestling with these things in your head, in your own heart about what you should do, how you should do it. Just remember that God is the ultimate hater of sin and he's the ultimate judge of sin, okay? So that anything we do is subject to having weaknesses, if not error, all right? One idea that I want to just dismiss plainly, and I don't think I have to spend time on it at all, and that is this idea that peace is the absence of conflict. Some are just saying, listen, you know, they overlook every offense. They don't want to address anything. They just want to, they just want peace. And the way they determine what is peaceful is for it to be absent of conflict. That's wrong. The Apostle Paul tells us in his epistles that we should do what we can, all that we can, to be at peace with all of our brothers and sisters and all men, as much as it what? Depends on us. Knowing that there are situations where there will be no peace. Not because there's not an effort, not because there's not a, 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 an attempt made to be at peace, but because it takes two to be at peace. It takes two to reconcile. It takes two to understand what is required between man and man in order for there to be real reconciliation, in order for there to be trust restored, in order for there to be love fostered and compassion exhibited and mercy displayed. It takes two. And sometimes that's just impossible because one party has determined they're not going to be reconciled or that no matter how grievously they have offended, they don't see it that way. And that's not the fault of the other. God does not hold the other party uh, accountable for the rebellion or the sin of the other party. So keep that in mind. I mean, we can look at all different, you know, just simple scenarios. I mean, a a murderer cannot ask the victim for forgiveness, right? He can't. And, And nor can the family extend forgiveness on the behalf of the murderer or the murdered. 
Now, they may have to deal with that on their own level because of the hurt and the pain and everything else that has come by losing a family member, a loved one. But that's not the same thing as extending forgiveness on behalf of the one who is the victim. They can be in any various numbers of violent situations, uh, circumstances that would, that would keep people apart from there ever being forgiveness asked. I mean, we would never ask a, a, a woman to go and confront her uh, uh, assaulter, you know, the one who's assaulted her. But yet, the Christian or the, the victim, as I've said in the other sermons, I'm not going to preach it here, has a moral obligation to, to respond and react in such a way that they don't fall into that malice, that bitterness, and that anger, okay? That, that disrupts their own lives, and flows out and, and harms and hurts others as well. So it's not just the peace of the absence of conflict. It's not accepting that all sins are equal and the same and they ought to be dealt with all the same. The Bible does not teach us that. Nor does the Bible teach us that we should all be so hypersensitive that everything is offensive to us. There are sins and then there are there are things that are just not personal and and again keep this in mind as we go along the people that fall into this category are are those that are highly focused on themselves that is everything's offensive words are parsed to the nth degree they have an extreme view of their of their own person or a heightened view of their own person and, and they generally by the way they approach the matter make things worse by aggravating minor sins to great offenses. We have to be careful of that. That can happen in families. It happens in churches and even in other companies and whatnot in the corporate world. We don't major on the minors. We keep the minors minors and we major on the majors. As we go forward, you'll see that minor sins can become major sins. If we're not do diligent work over our own hearts, as I've already addressed in the previous sermon, so we need to watch out for that. Another actual viewpoint that comes with, no matter what happens, just overlook it, love covers it, is this idea that we can be more loving and gracious than God is. And that's a failure point. We can't be more loving than God. God commands repentance. God's commandment is that all men would turn from their sins and their evil ways and turn to him. And by God's grace and strength and provided power in the Holy Spirit, what? Walk in righteousness. And that when there is sin between the man and the person between the person and God, that there would be repentance. Why do we repent of our sins on a daily basis? Because we sin against God, don't we? But that we also, when we, when, when we, you know, Calvin has a great article, and I'm going to make this point and then continue on. 
But Calvin's article on offenses, just one aspect of the article that I want to put into your mind, he makes a point and he emphasizes this point throughout the article that the, the, the distinguish between sins and offenses and that the, the, the major difference is that an offense is intentional. It's, it's, it's done to, to offend you. It's done to assault you. It's done in a way to hurt you. It's done in a way to bring pain into your life. It's done to a way to, to do, cause you to stumble. And he says, if that's lacking, then it's not an offense. That is, we say certain things. I mean, how many of us, I give my, I'll use myself for an example. I've had people call, uh, you know, you, uh, you offended me. Um, here's what was said. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm coming to you to make this right. And oftentimes I would just scratch my head thinking, I, well, I didn't, I mean, that was not, my intention was to offend you. We were having a conversation. Here's what I said. This offended you. But to ask the person to forgive me because, well, I, listen, this is, I, I don't see this as an offense. This is general conversation we were having, but you took offense to it. I wasn't planning or intending to what? Give offense. That wasn't part of it. And, and yet we can see this, what? This hypersensitive conscience or this, or you could say immaturity. People that just don't, haven't grown up biblically and really the study of scripture, right? that's the sword. That's what we want to do, right? We want to study scripture so that we know how to walk with our Lord and with one another, but that they believe that this hypersensitivity to sin is the biblical approach. And it just is not. Paul even addresses this in Romans 14 and in Corinthians when he talks about the weaker brother. Now, again, some people will say, look how the, the stronger brother is to conform to the weaker brother. Well, Paul doesn't just say that. He also says that the weaker brother must mature and grow so that he doesn't have these problems anymore. Okay? So we must learn how to distinguish between an offense and a sin. Now look at the text. Look at Matthew 18 and let's take the text and let's do some of this work. Well, first of all, notice that as I brought out for you in uh, the first part of the chapter, Jesus is addressing who is to inherit the kingdom of God or who is greatest in the kingdom. And he pulls a child to himself and he says, whoever in verse four, then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he talks about in verse six, anyone that would cause any of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, to stumble, that's the word scandalon. In the Greek word, we get the scandal from in English. Look at verse 7. He even gives a warning uh, to us all, right? He says, listen, to make sure that there is not a degree and level of anger and maliciousness in your heart, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand causes your foot um, or if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. I mean, Jesus is saying, listen, if in your heart 
you are entertaining these these sins like anger, maliciousness, and bitterness, and all, these things that rise easily to the degree of scandalizing, causing your brother, acting in such a way, sinning against your brother or sister to cause them to stumble. Jesus says, you better cut it off. You better amputate it. You have to deal radically with that degree and level of sin. There is a level of sin that you must contend with and you must be willing to deal with on a radical level and it is this kind of sin it's these sins that easily rise to the level of causing others to stumble and of course anger is one of those sins bitterness is one of those sins remember hebrews chapter 12 what happens to what is this bitter person do it right it grows up like a root in a tree or a, a, a plant and it when it when it blossoms and blooms it spreads and it defiles many it contaminates many you go back to ephesians chapter 4 and, and those are the types of sin that easily rise if we're not careful to the level of causing someone to stumble. That's why the book, the book of Proverbs, I mean, it has a lot to say about an angry person. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about a violent person, a bitter person, a malicious person, a deceitful person, and all of those are connected with this root sin of anger. And we must be careful. Now, when Jesus gets to verse 15, if your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Jesus doesn't use the word scandalon in that verse. He uses a very generic and common word for sin, uh, harmontion. And this is the one that he uses and, and, and this word encompasses both minor sins and major sins. And this is the, the, the principle that we can glean from this is that it's not that Jesus is saying, hey, if your brother sins minorly, go to him and show his fault. The point is minor sins can grow into major sins. And when they do, they have to be dealt with. Now, I'm going to give you uh, important connection between the New and the Old Testament. Now, in dealing with this Greek word that Jesus uses in verse 15, and it's the same word that he uses down in verse 21, where Peter came and asked him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin, right, harmartion, against me, and I forgive him? Jesus is saying, hey, this life is full of these, these, these minor sins. Hey, it, as long as he confesses, what should we do? Forgive throughout your whole life. Throughout all your life. These are, these are not... These do not rise to the level of scandal, and these, these are, are, are minor things. And so you, you have to walk with your, your husbands, your wives, uh, your children, your parents. 
you have to walk with work associates. You have to walk in this world with people that minor things happen. It doesn't minimize it in God's sight. God's the, the judge of everyone, but it doesn't mean we're to police every little infraction that we believe is an infraction, or it may actually be one, that that's not our role in this life. But here's what I want to do. That word is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The, the Septuagint was the, the Old Testament written in Greek so that these, these Jews who had lost their Hebrew language could read the Old Testament in Greek. And they used this word. Notice, I want to give you several places. Genesis 4, verse 7. And I want to show you the variance in the range of this verse, of this word. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. That's the, the Greek word hermartion. That, that shows you how, how sin can be lurking, but sin can also increase it's the word used in Genesis dozens of times. I'm just pulling out a few examples here. Genesis 20 and verse 9. It's where Abimelech calls Abraham and said, What have you done to us? And now that I have sinned against you, that's the word, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. Have you done these things that ought not to be done? And this was where Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife or his sister. And Abimelech took him to be his wife, took her to be his wife. And God came to him and said, you have taken a prophet's wife. This, she's his wife. You have sinned greatly. God was going to judge him for it. So Abimelech confronts Abraham. So you can see the range of this world, this word from minor things to what? Adultery. Large sins. It, it's a word that encompasses the whole range of sinning. And uh, Exodus 9 and verse 27, and Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one and I, my people, are the wicked ones. He says the same thing in Exodus 10 verse 16. The Lord hurriedly, hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. The point being is that Pharaoh told Moses, your people can go. But then when God brought, uh, when God ceased the plagues and Pharaoh saw that the plagues had ceased, he changed his mind and he said, no, you can't go. And then God would bring another curse. And now Pharaoh bearing the curse of these uh, of rebellion against God, what did God ask of Pharaoh? Let my people go. And so Pharaoh comes back and he goes, I have sinned. Now you would think this is a pretty big sin. That this is one of the, this is, this is high treason against God. God come explicitly to Pharaoh said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, I will. And then he changed his mind. And so he admitted that he had sinned against God and he had sinned against Moses. It's the same thing in Leviticus whole chapter four. And it's where our confession of faith addresses the idea of, of degrees of sin. 
There are various aggravations and degrees of sin. But Leviticus chapter 4, you have what happens when a common person sins? What happens when the sins are unintentional? What happens when the priest sins? What happens when the king sins? And then what is Moses doing? Moses is prescribing, right? What sacrifice, what needs to happen, what restitution needs to happen if these various people sin? And so therefore we see this wide range of sin and it helps us to understand. Now, what about the word the, the word scandalon in both the Old and New Testaments have a very particular meaning. It seems like the word scandalon takes out of harmation and applies it to a very particular, uh, in a very particular outcome, stumbling, causing someone to stumble in their faith. It's called a scandal. It's, ta- it's a sin but it also reaches a higher degree of aggravation because faith is at stake. It's the same way in the Old Testament when the priests or the prophets would not walk with God, but they would allow what we might call will worship. They would allow the people to, work up, to worship the occult there in their day and come and, and offer sacrifices back in the temple and to, and to offer lip service, but their hearts were far from God. God comes and he talks about this scandal and these stumbling blocks that you've laid before my people. You can talk about the sons of Eli were stumbling blocks to Israel, right? The text tells us right there where Eli is, says that his sons were so, uh, Hophni and Phinehas were so evil, they were so sinful, they were so wicked that people quit coming to the temple. Their sins reached a level of aggravation that become scandal, scandalous because of their immorality and their abuse of the temple that God's people stopped coming. And so this word scandalon has this idea. When Jesus uses it from anyone that would cause one of these little ones to stumble, look at the, look at the implication, a superior to an inferior. One who is mature, acting in such a way that cause one of these immature ones to stumble. It would be better they had never been born, that they have a millstone tied around their neck and cast into the sea. And that's why Jesus gives this great warning. Woe to you. Make sure that these sins aren't implanted, that these sins that are in all of our hearts have to be mortified. They have to be killed. They have to be amputated. You can't allow anger to reign in your heart. You can't allow malice to rule the day. You can't allow bitterness to overcome you you have to deal with it because then these these regular sins become scandalous sins well what does that have to do if you will to this conditional aspect of forgiveness i'll give you one point of application easy to remember God is our model. God is our model. You can ask yourself the question, is 
everyone in, that's going to ever be in heaven, have they been forgiven? Yes. Have they all asked for forgiveness? The answer is yes and no. Elect infants do not ask for forgiveness. Infants that die in infancy cannot ask for forgiveness of sins. But God in his compassion and mercy extend to them a degree of that compassion and mercy that's not applied to everyone else that can and should ask for forgiveness. Special needs. The elect that are special needs. Those who don't understand the gospel. Those who can't understand and grasp the gospel. Those who don't even understand their sinners. Those who are elect that fall into that category that will be in heaven along with the rest of all the others who have confessed their sins. Why? Because God's compassion and mercy to them are not the same to everyone else. Brothers and sisters, we are to take the word of God, we are to digest it, we are to consume it, and we ought to be discerning and we ought to show discretion in how we deal with each one of our circumstances, recognizing that age, maturity, how long someone's been a believer, how well they understand the scriptures, what is their office, are they, do they have an office in the church, are they, are they a regular, all of this is important as we judge whether or not sins are scandals or not. God is our model. There are three passages of Scripture that, are, that I think are abused in this understanding that we should just over, we should just spread forgiveness like fairy dust over everything, whether we're asked to forgive or not. Remember, to forgive someone is to grant something. It's to grant forgiveness. It's to grant love. It's to extend the, the willingness not to bring this up, not to allow this, this uh, conflict to go any further. And I think if we look at the text, let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs 10. We're going to look at three texts real quick. Proverbs 10 and verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Or your Bible, your version may say a multitude of sins. Often this verse is cited when someone may have, may be told they have an obligation and a duty to go to someone and address an offense, a, a biblical offense. Now, so, well, love covers a multitude of sin. And that's true. That's what the verse says. But here's the thing that this verse does not teach in exclusion to asking for forgiveness. The, the Bible assumes that repentance is needed for there to be forgiveness. That's the relationship we have with God. 
And that's the relationship we see with one another. The Bible tells us how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. How blessed is the man, Psalm 32, that has confessed his sins and sins are covered and forgiven by God. Notice the, notice the verse, hatred, what's, what's this proverb giving, what's this proverb teaching us? Well, first of all, it's a comparison between hate and love, hate and love, not forgiveness and unforgiveness, but hate and love. What does hatred do? What's an attribute of hatred? Stirs up strife. A person who has this sin of hatred embedded in their heart that's not dealt with is one that's always in the midst of conflict. They love conflict. Hatred stirs up conflict. It stirs up strife between brother and brother, families and family, churches and churches. The point is hatred doesn't easily forgive, does it? Hatred may stand and say, I don't know if you really mean it. I, I, you're asking me to forgive you, but I'm not convinced. They start parsing every word. They start, they, now they put themselves in the shoes of God. I think Brother John and I have been talking about what words actually need to be said in order for there to be genuine forgiveness. And I think we come to the conclusion that though words are highly important and valuable and needed, you need to work on that. However, what's more important is what? The intention of the heart. I am truly asking for reconciliation here. I want to be reconciled with you. I do not want to be a stumbling block to you. What I, I want to give restitution, whether it's words, whether it's actions, whether anything else I need to do in order to help make an amends and, and build and foster and create a new relationship between us. Hatred doesn't do that. Hatred keeps strife stirred up. Hatred is always in the midst of the conflict. When you start looking at someone's life and there's always conflict, always conflict, we have to ask or we should ask ourselves, am I a hateful person? Is this something that I don't even see in my own life? Am I blind to this? But that's an important question to ask. Love covers all transgression. It doesn't matter that is generally speaking, these 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 offenses can be forgiven. Yeah, I forgive you, brother. I forgive you, sister. Why? Compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy flow right out of love. Uh, this, is, this is exactly what Jesus was teaching. Love covers a multitude. Peter, love covers a multitude of sins. If your brother sins against you 70 times seven, forgive him. So this verse does not teach that we should overlook all these great sins, all of these aggravated sins, all of these offenses because we're loving people. That's not what it teaches. It teaches that we are not to be hateful, that we are not to be contentious, we are not to be malicious. We ought to be a loving people ready to, ready to exercise compassion and mercy 
when we're sinned against and they come to make this right, we stand ready and prepared to do what? Grant forgiveness. You want to know, listen, if I sin against you, what, and that comes to my attention and I come to you and I say, I've learned that I've sinned against you. I am, it grieves me. I am asking your forgiveness. I am asking you to bear with me, pray for me. I'm asking you to give me an opportunity to reconcile this situation and I will work hard to do so. I make a promise. I'm gonna work hard. I love you and I wanna do this the right way. I wanna please God. I wanna honor you. Look what that does to your confidence. Look what that does to the offended. Look what that does to the person hearing that like, wow. Wow, thank you that you loved me enough. Why? I was practicing, look, I might have been, I might have practiced hatred, but now I'm I'm practicing love, right? Let's look at Proverbs 19. So Proverbs 10 verse 12 cannot be used to justify this blanket forgiveness without asking for forgiveness. Proverbs 19 and verse 11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it is to his glory to overlook a transgression. Again, a similar situation, not exactly the same, but very similar. What do we have? We have a contrast here, discretion and this glory, his obedience, if you will, his honor. Our honor before God is to walk in his ways, to be obedient. Notice we are to be discerning, right? Again, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger. Brothers and sisters, anger, that root sin of anger is not a forgiving person. It's not one that's quickly or ready to overlook sin. An angry person often exacts a a pound of flesh for an ounce of sin, so to speak. They want more. But it's a man's discretion makes him slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook a transgression. Meaning, as these things rise to this occasion, whether we're, will you forgive me? Absolutely. Absolutely. I will forgive you. I will work with you. I will, I will continue to pray for you as you pray for me to have strength. I won't bring this up. I'm not going to beat you over the head with it. But I am going to, to, to walk with you in a reconciled relationship. And, and I am going to overlook this transgression because we can work this out. You have made this right, and I am going to work. I'm I'm going to forgive you and overlook this. When you overlook, listen, here's the biblical idea. It's covered. It's covered. We don't see it. Our love for one another has to grow to the point where we we can go past, go beyond that sin, that we love each other so much and that we, we want to emulate the love we have with our own God that we can, we can it, look, it's covered. I overlook, it's covered. I don't even see it. 
Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter four and verse eight. You can uh, read the application of, of the doctrines that Peter has laid out here. Um, and in verse eight, he says, above all, that is all of these other duties, but above all, what should we do? He says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. What's, what, what's needed for us to be a, a, a lo, loving, forgiving, converse, uh, a forgiving congregation? Love. Now, not that cheap love, that hardworking love. That love that's hard at work in doing what? Putting down the thoughts of our own imaginations. Putting down the, the things in our heart that want to rise up and crush others. That hypocrisy that rises up and treats other people's sins as more offensive than our own sins. Peter says this is imperative, this is important. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. This is how, you, this is how congregations last for generations. Brothers and sisters, last point. Consequences can often flow out of very grievous sins. Forgiveness does not erase those consequences. There are some things that happen in offending one another whereby there can be forgiveness granted, it does not eliminate the consequences. David continued to suffer the consequences of his adultery. He was forgiven, but he bore the stigma of that adultery and it caused great havoc in his own family. Adam and Eve bore the consequences of their sin, right? They were forgiven but they were also exiled from the garden to, to now labor before God in such an arduous, harder way than, than before would have been in, intended. Consequences. We need to recognize, brothers and sisters, how we walk with one another, how we determine what's an offense. As we look at a, a, any given situation, we have to ask ourselves, is there a scandal here? What's the implication? Was it intentional? What level does it rise to? Are there others involved? Are people stumbling over this? Am I truly stumbling over this? Or is this something that is just one of those harmatian sins that, well, that is not an offense, Consequences are real. When you think about a court, you think about crime, notice the conflation of forgiveness to our court system with the liberal social movement. It's not the court's job to forgive. 
It's the job of the victim when asked to forgive. What's the courts? What's the role of the courts? Justice. I had a friend of mine. His house was broken into. His wife walked in with the intruder still in the house, scared her to death. I mean, it was a bad situation. They did catch the people. And at the court, at the hearing, the, the uh, perpetrator's family was there begging the judge for mercy. And the person had a long history of crimes. When the gentleman that I know stood up after the family spoke to the judge to grant mercy in this particular situation, since no one was actually hurt, no physical harm actually happened, he got up and he said, Your Honor, that's my job. My job is to grant forgiveness when asked. That's what God requires of me. That's my moral obligation, not yours. Your moral obligation is to uphold your office and to render justice according to the statutes. I'm asking you, leave mercy to me and forgiveness to me, and you exercise the justice. And his small talk prevailed. And the judge rendered justice. Brothers and sisters, listen, this is a thorny, complicated, many-layered topic. Sin can get ugly. It can get ugly quick. Dealing with people, we know how entangling that can be, but nevertheless, we should be a people that's rich in love, rich in compassion, rich in mercy, and we should stand ready to cover a multitude of sins as biblically we are required by God to do. But brothers and sisters, listen to me. This view, this conditional view of forgiveness places a greater moral obligation on all of us to walk with each other with a greater sensitivity, doesn't it? Not just to ignore everything, but that I love you. I don't want, I want to be careful. I want to show you how much I love you by how we interact with one another. And what a play, what a transformation could happen in the church of Jesus Christ if we had this understanding and we walked with each other according to a conditional view of forgiveness. Let's pray. Now, Father in heaven, we ask your blessing upon us. And Lord, I don't know how many questions have been answered? I don't know. Father, all of the ins and outs of all the various relationships that everyone here may have or may even struggle with, but Lord, your word holds the answer. Your word says that your law is exceedingly broad, meaning that though it don't speak or give examples to every circumstance, principles can be extracted to be applied to every circumstance. So I pray for us here, Father, that you'd make us discerning, wise, diligent. Lord, that you'd make us knowledgeable, mature, um, and that you would fill us. Lord, the result of that would be we'd be filled with love and compassion and mercy. Lord, ready, standing, always ready 
to extend and grant forgiveness to those who need it. Lord, to meet that biblical need. So, Lord, we lay ourselves before you as incomplete, undone in many ways a week for you to work in us in a way that brings you glory, in a way that highlights your grace in us. Lord, for, for in our weaknesses, we pray that you would glorify yourself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.